Welcome to the Everyday Innovator Podcast for product managers, leaders, and innovators. Your host is Chad McAllister, helping you become a product master. Listen and get ready for higher performance, for the doctor is in. Hi, this is Chad, and this is where product leaders and managers make their move to product masters, learning practical knowledge that leads to more influence and confidence so you'll create products that customers love. In this discussion, our guest, Jonathan Soares, shares his tips and tools for working with product teams, product development teams. Jonathan is the CEO of Agency Labs. It's a group that creates custom software apps and websites. And although our focus, the context of our discussion, is digital products, you'll find a lot of the things we talk about will be applicable to other types of product teams, even if you're working with physical products or integrated hardware software products. And Jonathan has good experience applying tools to help product development teams work better, and we'll find out more about that in just a minute. First, I want to tell you about the notes for this discussion. You'll find a written summary of our discussion at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 236. The notes are a great way of looking back on key points that you might want to refresh your memory on or for sharing this discussion with others. So you can send them a link to the notes and they can listen to the discussion if they want or just review the summary of the notes. It's all right there. And that's at the everydayinnovator.com slash 236. Now, let's talk with Jonathan. Jonathan, thanks for joining the Everyday Innovators. Great to be here. Thank you. So you have a product team that develops software for other companies and provides some other services for them. So you have some good experience with this virtual model in a sense of how some companies will outsource their product development and also experience with kind of just in general, you know, what are the tools, processes, tips, and the like for when you're, uh, you know, starting a new project, doing that planning work and managing it in some kind of virtual environment. Kind of set the stage for us just what is that work that you've been familiar with, uh, kind of that virtual product team environment like? Sure. So uh, we are a web mobile and software development partner to traditional and in-house agencies. So the traditional agencies could be your digital, creative, advertising, marketing firm, and your in-house firm could be large corporation that's bringing that design strategy and kind of digital infrastructure in-house to avoid a lot of the fees. So we kind of augment them with technical advisory, development, testing, Mm -hmm. deployment, full end-to-end kind of product lifecycle support. Yep. And I run into this model a fair bit, organizations that I work with, where they may have a internal development capability to develop their product, whether it be hardware, software, whatever the case. And at the same time, for some projects, they may very well contract to uh, an external group to get that project done, right, to develop work on that. And in the process, we all seem to be distributed. Everyone seems to be working from different locations in some aspect of things. And I thought it'd be good to talk kind of about that aspect of things. And I really suspect that, you know, the tools, the processes, the tips that we'll go into uh, are going to naturally come up. So I thought trying to separate out what are the tools we use, you know, what are the processes like might be challenging. So I thought maybe we could structure our discussion around the phases of a project. So let's say there's a new project that comes along. What do you do before you even meet? How do you get ready for that first interaction in kind of that virtual team environment where people aren't all together in the same place? Sure. So the the first interaction is the kind of inbound inquiry about uh, an opportunity. Um, we'll usually uh, be provided with either designs, an RFP, uh, in a high-level scope of work. Uh, sometimes there's technical requirements, documents. Sometimes there's a 
I mean, a fully completed brief that has sitemap wireframes, you know, user stories, journeys, I mean, annotated wireframes, the whole kit and caboodle. Every organization is different in the level of documentation or where they bring us into the process. But usually it starts with a series of questions. So our internal team, myself, my technical director, and uh, one of our technical project managers will review the documentation in detail. Uh, We'll compile a series of questions, um, just getting uh, very granular in terms of features, functionality, the intention, getting understanding that they're in current hosting environments, the current technologies that they're using. Um, And and we found that asking the right questions builds a a level of comfort with clients uh, because they like to see how we think. Mm -hmm. And if you're asking the right questions, it builds up an initial rapport, uh, which is definitely a strong part of our process. But from there, it's it's reviewing um, the answers to their questions, uh, setting up a call to discuss them. Um, And then from there, it's us taking all those requirements and compiling a very detailed uh, proposal. Our proposal is our Bible. And that is the kind of um, all-encompassing guide for us to be as efficient and uh, streamlined throughout our production process, because everything stems from how we do- how and what we document in that proposal in terms of the scope creep, requirements, timeline, expectations. Hmm. Okay, so this fits into some examples I've been running into lately as I've been working with some other larger organizations. So I think for listeners where this might tie in well is if you have a project in your, your organization that you're getting ready to get help on, maybe through an external contracting group, bring in a team to uh, help get this developed, or even in the situation where you have those internal resources, often as product people, we don't always have the close relationships with those internal resources. And we kind of you know have to go through all the same stages, right? There's one organization I've been working with and they have a a physical factory that is you know in another country, and they kind of have to do this process themselves and put together the RFP in a sense, right? The spec to say what needs to be developed and working with the team somewhere else. So in that context, I want to explore how do we set up you know for success from the beginning. If we're the larger organization wanting to get something developed, and we come to a group like yours to say, you know, here's what we're thinking about doing. What is that information that you really need to get this started well? And where do you like to get involved in the process? So we love to get involved as early on as possible. Yeah, uh, I personally like the side of it where someone might come to me and say, hey, we have this problem or we have this idea and it's our job to help extract all the requirements and help formulate what that requirements, document, scope of work could be. Because mm-hmm. a lot of times when your head is so deep into an issue or a project, it's tough to, to kind of see through the weeds and figure out exactly what you need clearly. So part of our job on one sense is kind of going through that process and being the folks that can think through and point things out and, and make recommendations to help formula, formulate what exactly should be built. On the other side, it's uh, the organization that is a bit more buttoned up um, and they've done a lot of the internal conversations. Um, they've gone through their their kind of processes to figure out what needs to be built. They've met with stakeholders. At that point, um, as much information as, as humanly possible to really document what it is that needs to be done. Um, sometimes we'll advise um, clients that we're working with, especially if the initiatives are focused more on innovation, to have an internal innovation roadmap or dialogue. So it's kind of like a framework that you, that you put together. A questionnaire might be three, five, 10 pages of all the requirements that you want your internal team members to gather mm-hmm. as they do with different requests. 
and it'll make things a little bit more efficient because we often work with organizations that they might have 10 or 15 different departments and a product manager might be approached by three of them saying, Hey, we need X, Y, and Z. Uh-huh. And that person great. You know, what does that mean? And if you have that kind of guideline they say, all right, well, I need you to go through and follow these steps and fill out, you know, this questionnaire. And from there we can engage a development partner to figure out, you know, more information that we'll inevitably need. But that at least gives all parties a sense of not only what goes into building this to justify cost and time, but also to start thinking about all the different variables so we can start planning and get things moving from a production standpoint. Yeah, I can see why you would get engaged at different places along the way, right? So very early, which is preferable, or you know, basically here's a spec, go build this thing for us. I, you know, through my experiences in developing products, I really hate that feeling of throwing something over the wall, right? This notion of we're going to do all the work defining what this thing is, and then we're going to throw it out to a development team and expect that we're going to get what we envisioned. When they don't have any of that context. And bringing in the development team as early as possible, at least someone from it, is so helpful. And I had this cool experience recently. I want to get your take on this. So an uh, organization was wanting some help understanding some point of views of the customers, personas of the customers better. And we, I put together a design thinking workshop for them. But we talked through, what are we going to do after we get this output from the design thinking workshop? Well, let's, let's do what, what I call an MVP boot camp to really come up with what an MVP would look like based on what we learned and that it would be important. Whoever's going to be developing this MVP, we need them in the room with us, at least for the MVP bootcamp. And that was really valuable. So they worked on identifying a group like yourselves, I imagine, right? A, a little specialty contracting group that works in the kind of apps they were thinking about. And, and then when the lead architect there joined that bootcamp with us for two days, and you got to hear all of the background about what came out of the design thinking workshop and went through the process with us, figuring out the features for the MVP and prioritizing what might come next. I thought that worked really well. Give me your thoughts because you've been on the kind of the other side of this. Did the architect stick around or? Uh... Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. He, he was there for the, the two days that we did this and really involved. And then I thought, you know, that helped him to be in a really clear position to say, okay, here's the estimate for the work that needs to get done, right, to build this thing. Yeah, I mean, getting someone involved early on is is so beneficial, especially if it's a partner that you trust. Mm-hmm. The worst thing you want to do is kind of go through these internal motions and then all of a sudden, you know, throw something out to, you know, a handful of shops and say, hey, give me your price. Right. And it, it doesn't really get them ingrained and in, emotionally and intellectually invested in the project because it's just a transaction at that point. So our best projects, our best relationships are the ones that get us involved as part of those discussions from a, a discovery due diligence standpoint. Mm-hmm. And it's cool. Like when, when you're in a room, you know, two, three day workshop and you guys are, are whiteboarding, you know, different layouts and, and different kind of architecture ideas for specific functionality. And people start asking questions. Then you dive deeper into how that would be integrated or structured. And then they start realizing the amount of effort that goes into it. And then all of a sudden, you know, they might have a kitchen sink idea, but by the time you're done refining it, you have a very clear roadmap and concise deliverable that is kind of far superior than what it would initially be. And, and a lot of organizations charge for that. But for us, like, that's not something that I'll go in and say, hey, look, you know, we want, you know, here's the, the cost for, for that time. That's part of our value add mm-hmm. is saying, hey, we're going to invest, you know, a couple of days, a few hours to help you think through this. We'd love the work. But it, it, 
first and foremost, we want to make sure that we mesh well intellectually and our minds are aligned to how we're thinking about how they should be built um, based on what you're looking for and your organization really needs. You're really coming at it from a partnership perspective um, and getting involved early. I love that. We just need the better context, the bigger context, and even internally in in our teams. Too often we get the development or engineering resources involved late in the process. They don't have the bigger context and they can help us develop a better product if they have that larger context about what does the customer actually need, right? What's the value we're creating? And the last thing you want from a, a development partner, because if you look at the personality traits between developers and, and creatives and the actual kind of product managers or project managers, um, very different degrees of, of kind of personality traits. So a developer, if you give them a set of requirements and say, build it, it's, it's very transactional. And you deal with the kind of resistance from, from, with a developer of, oh, that's not possible, or we can't do this, or we can't do that. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a one-to-one yes or no where we take the approach kind of translating, you know, human speak to development speak and vice versa. Right. And really using empathy um, and putting ourselves in the client's shoes to talk through things, figure them out. And if something's not going to work, you know, we're going to make alternate recommendations because we want to make sure that things are done properly. But I've seen so many, I mean, we exist because many people have had so many poor experiences with development partners, you know, frustrations on delivery on you know not recommending the right functionality not building things properly and that really boils down to communication and understanding and being able to manage those specific personality traits mm-hmm. yeah if you really do have kind of this larger understanding of what the customer needs and what they value we're all going to end up with a better product and getting the developers the engineering team on board with that is really helpful there was one project a long time ago that got outsourced and kind of thrown over the wall. And it was a data entry thing, right? And it came back and it was now a web-based instead of the old green screen, you know, dumb terminals, now a web-based data entry screen. And the, the data entry people went from being able to do about 10 screens a minute down to about one, just because of the way it was designed and the refresh rate with the data. It's like if the developers were brought in earlier into the process, I bet they would have noticed that this was a a requirement that was just never stated. Yep. Okay, good. So I like that perspective a lot. When this does not happen and you do kind of get that spec maybe thrown over the wall and you said it really helps to ask the right questions, what could we do working with a group like yours make that maybe a better process when we are throwing that spec over the wall? And what are those right questions that you need to ask? So it really depends on the type of product or project. Because, I mean, there's different questions for, you know, mobile apps to web apps to websites to microsites to, I mean, you name it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, thinking through the, your requirements and just documenting um, is, is, is such a great start. I know it seems kind of basic, but we've been a part of RFPs where, you know, it could be a, it, recently, actually, it was a huge health network. And they sent over this 26-page RFP. It was all about their branding and philosophy and, you know, the types of users that go to their site and all the design strategy kind of higher arching stuff that doesn't give us an insight into, you know, what actually needs to be built. Right. Um, There was literally maybe out of 26 pages, like half a page of technical requirements. And we were like one of like seven agencies involved and they had like a, a call with all the uh, agency groups asking questions because you have to submit them in and, you know, review them all together. They sent, I think 40 pages of just questions that people were asking, trying to figure out, you know, what 
the heck we were going to build. Mm-hmm. That RFP process was supposed to be six weeks. And it, it's been going on for six months because that client never realized what actually was going to go into, you know, building what they were asking for. They just thought, mm-hmm. Hey, let's, let's put this out there and, you know, we'll figure it out from there. But you know, that's the, the worst approach you, you could actually take. So any form of documentation is, is the best start. And then from there, a good partner will help pull out the rest as they, as they start diving deeper and kind of peeling the, you know, folds of the onion back. Yep. Do you like seeing wireframes in the RFP process at that point, or would you rather have a different understanding of the requirements and you work on wireframes? So if it's a situation where, um, let's use an agency, for example, digital agency, and they're, they're bidding on a project. Um, usually we're not seeing any kinds of wireframes or creative assets. It's us going through this process. I just explained, Mm -hmm. you know, really trying to dig deep and figure out what actually we have to scope and bid on. That's one side. On the flip side, let's say an agency has, has, uh, won a project. They've gone through most of the, you know, strategy design phases, the ideal handoff, you know, we're going to get um, technical requirements doc because ideally they've done some technical discovery and they have a list of third-party integrations, APIs that we have to account for, um, custom functionality that has to be built, any like special features that they're looking for. From there, it's uh, the, user, the user stories. I'm understanding all the different types of use cases that's going to be happening on the site. Um, annotated wireframes are amazing just so we can understand it only from a a functional standpoint, what we have to account for, but also from an interactivity standpoint, mm-hmm. if there's certain transitions and things that have to happen from a, a, a UI UX standpoint, um, that's great. Um, giving us examples of those transitions and interactions and interactivity is awesome. There's a site called uh, CodePen, codepen.io. It's great for different kinds of samples of all front end uh, type stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, once we've get, gotten that, I mean, full designs are, are beautiful, you know, desktop, tablet, and mobile, if it's a responsive type of, of, of a project, uh, so we can see all the different breakpoints and, and everything. Um, and once we have that, I mean, we've got literally everything uh, that makes our lives easier from a scoping standpoint. And then from there, we just become like a digital manufacturer, taking all those assets, putting it through our production cycle, and outputting a, uh, a project, ideally on time and on budget. Yeah, I would think part of that picture comes into play just with what are the resources and the expertise that are available, you know, within kind of this uh, virtually dispersed team that's been formed around this product, right? Internally, if I have really good UX capabilities, then I may very well want to give you not just wireframes, but, you know, here is the interaction guide and here's how we want things to be. On the other side of that, I find, because I'm not a UX guy, I find wireframes and discussing that the type of user interaction experience to be really helpful and to, you know, mock up some wireframes and then to have a designer developer take that really as kind of flushing out the requirements in a sense. It's my attempt to help better communicate the requirements and not have it be, this is the strict how I want things, but I want you to understand what needs to happen. And then you as the designer UX and development team makes sense out of that. Does that work? It does work. Um, One side that, I mean, I personally like it. It's fun when we deal with like, a, I guess, a minimal viable products or initial proofs of concept. Um, I love rapid prototypes. Yep. I'm not kind of Envision app, you know, glorified Envision app prototype. I mean, like a, a functional spec that's you could actually, you know, beta test out in the field. Mm-hmm. So at times, and this usually happens with um, kind of in-house teams um, that, that we're, involved, we're involved with. They don't want to go through kind of a long, arduous kind of creative 
discovery process. We'll go through requirements gathering and then we'll formulate our own wireframes, which usually I'll do uh, just because I can visualize exactly, you know, what they're looking to, to have built. Uh-huh. And then we'll go right into development and use some kind of a, you know, bootstrap or, you know, front end framework. That's uh, you know, clean looking interface, but we'll build out, you know, uh, the, the initial proof of concept, get that in front of users, and then we'll actually do the design process after the fact, polishing everything up once we've mm-hmm. built it, instead of doing it in the beginning. Because, you know, you can spend, you know, four, six, eight, 12 weeks going through creative, and then you're going to spend another, you know, <clears throat> four, six, eight, 12 weeks during dev before someone actually sees something. Right. So we've seen the ability to get corporate buy-in by going right into development by having very well-documented requirements. Uh, and then from there, you know, beautifying it once we've gotten internal feedback and then, you know, releasing, you know, the MVP from there, which is kind of a fun process for us. Yeah. And if you wholeheartedly agree, you need to get something into the user's hands quickly, right? Get the prototypes out, get feedback. And you don't want those to look pretty, right? Because then people feel hesitant about giving you feedback. Yeah. You want it to look like a work in progress. Yeah. Okay, so that helps a lot with just how we kind of get started on the project. I'm interrupting the interview to share something really important. We'll get back to the discussion in just a minute, but I want you to know about an extraordinary system called the Rapid Product Mastery, or RPM Experience. In just nine weeks, you can have a higher-performing product team, meeting only 75 minutes a week with no travel required. One product leader, after trying all the typical training workshops, turned to the RPM experience to get real change for his team. He said that this is the only training that provides an integrated product management perspective. It did exactly what I needed it to do. If you have a group of 5 to 14 product professionals, learn how you too can have a high-performing team in just 9 weeks, 75 minutes a week, without travel. This is the system created by Chad, based on his experience working as a product leader, coaching several organizations, and deeply studying innovation during his PhD work. Get the guide for yourself at theeverydayinnovator.com slash RPM. What about once the project is ongoing? Just how are we interacting together, right? So we're still in this kind of geographically distributed virtual environment. And if I'm on the organizational side and I've hired a contracting agency to do work, you know, my environment is geographically distributed. <laughs> Somehow we need to keep in sync with each other. Tips, tools for managing this ongoing. Sure. So most of our clients, they either have portions of their team distributed. Um, so we might be working with, you know, a client in Canada who has some, you know, reps, you know, dispersed throughout the U.S. Uh, we've done work with Cognizant and they have, you know, uh, team members in Atlanta, some in Connecticut, uh-huh. and then they have their offshore IT team in um, Hyperbat or Bangalore, and you're dealing with all these moving pieces. Um, so we're very familiar with that. Our side of the house, we like being centralized. So our entire team works from our Connecticut office. Uh, that's, I mean, for me, um, I like the fact that if we can go over to a team member, walk over, whiteboard something, d- discuss an issue. Um, it's part of the upsell that our clients really love about us is that, you know, our responses are immediate. We, we have access and we're always there. Um, so that, that's kind of a, on our side of the house, what's been, what's, what's been fairly valuable. So once we actually get into, into that process, uh, everything is efficiency based. Um, we, the tools we use, the, the methodologies that we have, everything is geared towards, you know, a production minded environment. 
and kind of very thoughtful workflows. So um, I'll start with like our technical project managers, my tech director. Um, once we do a kickoff, um, there it's really uh, understanding any finer detail requirements, um, going through all the expectations. Setting expectations from day one is super, super important above and beyond the products or tools that you're going to use. Understand the communication expectations, um, understanding uh, the, the delivery expectations, uh, specific timeline, uh, any you know gaps you might see in in the workflows between vacations and stakeholders that might or might not be involved. Uh-huh. So we can fully formulate you know our overall kind of uh, production roadmap. We'll typically use smart sheets for that, and we'll document everything. I mean, literally, so you know, I mean, so many rows of detail in terms of when things are being delivered and expectations. And what do smart sheets look like? Is that a Google sheet like thing? Yeah. Smart sheet. It's like a Gantt chart type type thing. Okay. So you can kind of map out um, each, you know, aspect and, uh, you know, date based kind of milestones. Yeah. It uh, sounds familiar. I don't think I've used it for a long, long time. So it looks like a Microsoft project or one of the open source things, a, a Gantt chart tool to help everyone understand what to expect when. Exactly. We've okay. used team games. We've used a bunch of them. Smart sheets kind of uh, after testing a few, we kind of, Fell, fell for that one. Yep. Um, internal communication, big fans of Slack. Uh, we've used other kind of communication solutions, but everyone nowadays uh, has some kind of, you know, Slack type solution. So uh, that's day-to-day communication. Uh-huh. We not only our internal team, but also our, you know, our client teams as well. And then we have uh, Basecamp um, for kind of our main kind of central point of, I guess, where we're storing most of the, the tasks, to-dos, and, and files. And our PM team takes all that and um, all the requirements, and we manage most of that in Jira. So we're big fans of the entire Atlassian suite, uh, Jira, Confluence, and Confluence stores. It's, it's our wiki. It stores all the, the project, you know, documentation and information. Our PMs are very, very thorough about you know how they're you know t- you know taking notes and documenting requirements so that we can kind of measure back against our our proposals and also to kind of keep our clients um, abreast of. of progress jira i mean that that's made us wildly efficient every aspect of our project is broken down to a series of tickets each ticket is tied to a, a time estimate um then we we kind of track you know production activity via there and we can track overall production hours and then that gives the ability to provide you know weekly reports to our clients as well as we go through you know status updates and, and where where we're going from there um, we've used trello we've used a bunch of other you know pm solutions Sometimes we use uh, client-mandated solutions. That's totally fine. But we have kind of our core that, that we use that kind of keeps us laser-focused and streamlined. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's kind of your project stack. Yeah. Just to walk through those a little bit. So Smartsheets is for the scheduling piece of it. So Slack for internal communications and also client communications. Do you create the, you know, for a new project then, since you're, you're using Slack internally, do you create just a, add a channel for invite the client to that? Or how do you keep everyone kind of on the same Slack space? Sure. So if it's a, an, an in-house client or direct client per se, um, they'll have direct access to a specific uh, Slack channel that we've set up. Um, if it's an agency relationship, um, we'll have our kind of um, you know agency labs and set agency channel. And then we might have a, a global one with their client in it as well. Because sometimes we're fully disclosed, sometimes we're white labeled. It really mm-hmm. depends on the relationship. So a lot of times we have to navigate that and make sure that we have different communication points so everyone is is looped in. Okay. Have you had the experience where the organization 
that's bringing you in, they have their own Slack environment already set up that they're using, and they want to add you into that. And any issues with that? Does communication still work fine? Yeah, still fine. Okay, so it doesn't disrupt your internal team to be just looking no. at somewhere else. Okay. And then Basecamp, yep, kind of consolidating your tasks, files, central place. And you said Endura as another tool? Jira. Oh, Jira. Okay. Yes, yeah, sorry. I thought there was a, a one in there I wasn't familiar with. Okay, yeah. So Jira's oh, work. I, I like, built something called Endura. Yeah, I know. There, there's all these tools that show up at times. Like, okay. So, yeah, Jira you're using and you're keeping track of each task that has to get done as a ticket. And that's how you make sure you're managing the work that's getting completed. Yeah. It's amazing with Jira. Like, even when we're like scoping and bidding a project, it's as much as our kind of understanding of the deliverables and the timelines is it rush? Is it not rush? It, you know, yada, yada. Um, as it is going back and looking up historical project data, mm-hmm. being able to say, look, we've done these three projects. Here were the time, you know, uh, the time commitments of each of those projects. And this is like the baseline of why we're pricing something this way. Having that level of data to tap into has been awesome for us, um, especially when we're going through that scoping process, um, new projects. Yep. So that sounds like it's kind of the core to everything you do. Yeah. If you don't have Jira, things would not be where you want them to be. I mean, and people don't like tracking time, but we've mandated it. And it's something that's part of our workflow, our model. And, mm-hmm. you know, we give our team visibility and say, hey, look, you know, here's how the team is tracking time. And we can see, you know, which team members kind of aren't tracking based on where our, our benchmark or threshold should be. And we're pretty active on a monthly or quarterly basis when we're doing kind of, you know, internal reviews or checkups saying, hey, you know, we really need to, you know, brush up on, on time tracking because, you know, we're slipping in, in this certain area. Yep. And it helps us immensely. Yeah. All these are really important tips just for an uh, organization, right? Any kind of project you're managing, somehow you have to keep everyone involved in the project, the stakeholders, the project team that's getting the work done on the same page. Communication is really important. And we need a way to manage the work. And tracking time, tracking progress is an aspect of just metrics that will help us in the future. And it helps us identify problems so we can take action to try to get things back on the, you know, on the right path if needed. 100%. So, okay, really good tools. Thanks for talking through that. And I just encourage listeners that, you know, make sure you have the right tools, regardless of your environment, that you have the right tools for keeping track of what needs to get done and then communicating well with each other. And there's some large organizations that I'm working with right now that those are fundamental problems for them. And they just need to do a better job communicating and tracking what needs to get done. So thanks for the information. As listeners know, I love an innovation quote. Uh, What do you have for us? And tell us also why you chose that one. So my quote's from Henry Ford. If I had asked people what they wanted, they would have said faster horses. Um, I love that quote. Everything about innovation and product development, it's all about having foresight into the future. And I think uh, the most groundbreaking innovation has been those that didn't, you know, went against the grain and were what people needed instead of, you know, what they actually wanted. Yeah, I love that quote, too, for so many good reasons. One is there's actually no evidence that Henry Ford have ever said this, which I think just adds to the whole picture of this. But it does such a good job of describing we need to have insights, too, as product professionals about what customers need, not just what they're expressing to us. And we often get there just by understanding the problem more deeply that they're trying to solve. And then we can help, you know, through our expertise, come up with better ways to solve that problem for them. So thanks for sharing that. Love that quote, too. How can listeners find out about the work that you do, get in touch with you, and learn more about the agency? Sure. They can uh, check us out online, agencylabs.com. 
they can email me, Jonathan at agencylabs.com. And I'm pretty active on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. I always respond. So feel free to say hi. Awesome. I used to be more active on LinkedIn and I've gotten so incredibly busy lately. I feel bad. So listeners, anyone trying to get a hold of me on LinkedIn, I'm sorry. I will catch up. It's a great place to make connections. So I'll make sure the links to those resources, including your LinkedIn profile, gets out there in the show notes. Jonathan, I appreciate you taking time. Sounds like you're involved in some pretty cool things. Thanks for sharing the important tips, some of the processes there for how do we just work when we're distributed, working with different resources and making our projects go well. Thank you so much for having me. It was a great time. Thanks again for listening to The Everyday Innovator, where product leaders and managers make their move to product master, learning practical knowledge that leads to more influence and confidence so you'll create products that customers love. Jonathan shared some great tips with us, tools and practices, and you'll find the written notes of that discussion. If you want to look back at anything or share it with your colleagues, with your friends, just go to theeverydayinnovator.com slash 236. Keep innovating. Thank you for listening to The Everyday Innovator, which teaches product managers to become product masters. For more resources, please visit theeverydayinnovator.com.